Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back, book nerds, to another interview with the New Books Network, Channel and Language and Media and Communications. My name is Lee Pierce. I am your hostess with the mostest, and I am very excited today to have on one of the authors of the new book, A Feeling of Wrongness, Pessimistic Rhetoric on the Fringes of Popular Culture, Joseph Packer. The book was co-written with Ethan Stoneman, who couldn't be with us today, but Joe is here and he has lots of thoughts. The book was published by the Penn State University Press in 2018 for anyone interested in picking up a copy. And it is just a really awesome look at this concept of pessimism, which most people in the vernacular will understand as kind of, you know, doubt, sadness. And it's very much a, um, like a taboo word now, right? Like we see all these motivational posters and optimism. And even with the COVID discourse happening, you see a lot of people really wanting to push the optimistic. And this book is not about rescuing the pessimistic in the usual sense of the word, but rescuing pessimistic as understood through different philosophical and rhetorical traditions as, as, a, as a way of being in the world that is actually quite different and I think a lot more sophisticated than the way that that word has come to be understood in popular and political culture. And the book is also, it just does an awesome job of pulling in all kinds of different exemplars and testing grounds for looking at different versions of pessimism, everything from supernatural horror to true detective to Rick and Morty, which I have a lot of thoughts about video games, short stories. I mean, it's really a very cool book for anybody who loves the intersection of philosophy, rhetoric, and pop culture. So I can't recommend it enough. I had a great time reading it. I had to read some chapters twice because they're so deep and rich. So this um, this interview will probably only cover the surface, but the good news is, is you can read the book for yourself. So once we're done, I will tell you more about how to pick up a copy or how to get a copy for your local library. But without further ado, I believe Joe's still on the line. Joe, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Great. Terrific. Well, as I just said, I loved this book. Uh, could you tell us more maybe about yourself, about Ethan, if you feel like talking about your co-author or sure. we can just pretend, and then how the book came about and anything else that maybe you want to discuss to frame the book for an audience who's unfamiliar with your work? Yeah. So... I'm a professor at Central Michigan University, professor of communication. I also run the debate team there. Ethan is a professor of communication at Hillsdale College. And uh, we went to the same university for our graduate program. So I met him there. We're good friends. And the book developed out of uh, an article that we wrote for um, for a journal the Journal of Horror Studies, which is a great, cool journal. And the original thing that we wrote was about weird fiction. So um, these sort of subset of horror stories. And he was really into that. I was really into philosophical pessimism. And, you know, it was just, these were both interests that we had, and we knew that the other person had them. And we're like, let's maybe write about these things together. And and we did. And it was um, surprisingly good. We meshed well together. <laughs> uh, and uh, it worked out pretty well. Wonderful. Well, do you, do you want to tell us more about a little bit about um, like what excites you about the book? Or what do you think readers are going to find most fascinating? Or maybe just some background, anything that you think would be a good entry point to people listening? To the yeah. Book? So 
I think that the book examines all of these sort of cult pop culture classics like Rick and Morty, Final Fantasy VII, um, these weird fiction stories like the work of H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, so in that sense, I think we're looking at case studies that most people are familiar with and maybe analyzing them from a perspective that most people aren't that familiar with. So we are examining uh, pessimists. And by pessimists, we're using this term to refer to a very specific group of people. Obviously, as you said, it's been a, you know, pessimism is a word in the common vernacular refers to, you know, people who generally unhappy with how things are or don't think things are going to go well. But when we're talking about pessimists, we're talking about this philosophical school that goes way back in time. There are not very many of them, certainly, but they, they've been around for a while. And they argue essentially that existing is not good. We, it would be better if you didn't, if there was nothing rather than something, it would be better if you were never born, you referring to all people. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're not, Ethan certainly uh, isn't, a, isn't a pessimist. Uh, you know, he, he enjoys life very much, he has a bunch of kids. Uh, you know, I'm sort of pessimist sympathetic, but I wouldn't describe myself as a pessimist. And so the book isn't about trying to convince you to be a pessimist. Rather, it's looking at how this group of people who almost no one agrees with, how can they possibly argue? How could they possibly spread their ideas? Um, because they're starting from a point where nobody agrees with what they say. And we make the case that not only is everybody sort of predisposed to disagree with them, because most people like existing, you know, if you ask the average person, would it be better if you didn't exist? They would say no, and probably also think you were a very strange person. So they're coming up against that obstacle for persuasion. But we make the case, and in relying on the work of others as well, that the ways that we communicate are hostile to a pessimistic message. So rhetoric, um, in here, rhetoric is sort of like this ancient tradition that continues to modern day of like, how do we persuade others? Uh, drama, and by that we mean, you know, just theater, but also in general, media, comedies, tragedies, argument and debate, all of these things that we communicate ideas through are intrinsically optimistic or hostile to a pessimistic message. So I could give you arguments for pessimism. I can give you arguments for the idea that it would be better for there to be nothing than something, but the using the tools of argumentation is intrinsically optimistic. And by that, I mean, if it's true that I can give you good reasons and structure my ideas well, and then persuade you to accept my viewpoint, <clears throat> then doesn't that give us hope for the world? Like, isn't, well, okay, why don't we just use good arguments to make the world a better place? So by using the tools of arguments and structure, um, that is an optimistic thing. Whereas pessimists kind of think there is no meaning. Everything is sort of, you know, 
random. We think that we're using our logic to make decisions, but really we're, in the words of one famous pep- pe- pessimist, you know, meat puppets, right? And so, uh, and it's the same with drama, right? So obviously comedy, you know, we look at the world around us and bad things happen to people and we laugh, right? So that seems pretty optimistic. But even tragedy, which most people would say, well, obviously tragedy is pessimistic, but the people who have really studied tragedy often say that's not the case. You know, we view an incredibly tragic story. So, you know, a classic one is uh, the tale of Oedipus Rex, right? Who has a really nasty life, um, tries to fight his fate and can't do it, and ends up, you know, I won't repeat the whole story here, but not great for him. But uh, Aristotle has made the case that, you know, we watch a tragedy or listen to a tragedy and it doesn't make us sad about existence. You know, we take on those tragic feelings and it gives us a moment of catharsis, right? It allows us to release our sense of bad feelings into the world. And so, you know, if you can't communicate through argument, pessimistic ideas, you can't communicate through drama, rhetoric is about um, persuasion, right? But also when you look at the tools of rhetoric, the tools of rhetoric about creating connection with audience, they're about sharing meaning with others. And so these are all things that don't lend themselves well to pessimism. So you have a great podcast, um, rhetorically speaking. Oh, my thank you. Yeah, and you examine cliches, right? And These are things, um, uh, the last one you did was on face the facts, which is just a common saying that you'll hear and and you do a great job of sort of, you know, why do we say these things? And oftentimes kind of debunking them as, you know, we take these things as self-evident, but they're not necessarily true, right? And in addition, I don't know if you've, I haven't listened to all of them. I don't know if you've touched on this, but. How dare you? <laughs> Probably you have. This, come on this interview and not listen to... No, go right ahead. There's uh, so many cliches. I, I'm sure I haven't touched yeah. on the one you're about to talk about. Uh, well, it's it's the idea that we have cliches that are contradictory, right? Yes. So, you know, we'll say something like, um, you know, if you want something done, do it yourself. But we'll also say two heads are better than one. Or mm-hmm. we'll say the early bird gets the worms. But good things come to those who that wait. So not only can these things individually be taken down and shown to be wrong, but we have them and they just contradict each other. So that suggests that, you know, these cliches, there's something about them that's just about comforting us, right? We say them so we say these cliche things so that we feel good. It feels like the appropriate thing to say. And in that sense, again, rhetoric is not aligned with people who say nothing should exist because they're not about comforting us, right? They don't want us to be comforted. They want us to confront the badness of the world around us and ultimately to agree with them that it'd be better if there was nothing rather than there was something. Well, and I think I think I think my definition of clichés have always been that clichés fix one side of the contradiction. So if you think of all of our lives as just a contradiction, and I think pessimism, optimism is a great one, right? It seems like you'd have to pick one, but in fact, your whole life is just a cycle of optimism and pessimism and they work together because you really, that's the whole thing. You can't really have one without the other. And so trying to live a life in which one or the other is 
exclusive makes zero sense. So even the pessimists have to admit have to admit of optimism, and even the optimists have to admit of pessimism for either perspective to function. And so the cliches sort of let you believe that you can only that you only have to exist in one area. When in fact, I think what rhetoric does is teach people to stop treating contradictions like contradictions and start treating them like the like they're the truth, right? Contradictions are the only truth that we have access to. So, do you know that? Do you know that F. Scott Fitzgerald quote from the Crack Up about intelligence? No. Mm-mm. So, so after the Depression, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know the guy who wrote The Great Gatsby, writes this really good magazine article. I think it was for Esquire. I can't remember. It's really old. It's from like the twenties maybe early 30s. And he has this quote um, that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And then he goes on to say, one should be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. Right. And so I think that's a great illustration of how I think human behavior works. And that's why I get very frustrated when people want to fix it as optimistic because you just deprive yourself of so much complexity of thought and behavior and belief when you don't admit to pessimism as just part of your inherent worldview, right? Where you try to like, try to like keep it out of the picture. And so the book just does a, a really excellent job of bringing pessimism back into the picture in ways that make it actually seem, I think, very attractive if you'll just admit that it's already how you think anyway. You just don't want to feel that way. Hence, hence the title of the book, right? The feeling of wrongness, because you're you're trying to almost turn the feeling of wrongness into like a kind of like jouissance, right? To use that French term of like pleasure and pain. Like it's, it's not wrong the way we think of like hurt being wrong. It's wrong the way we think of like, oh, I shouldn't like this, but I sort of do. Does, does that feel like it vibes well with how you're thinking about it? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, and you know, you and I um, kind of come from that rhetorical tradition. I don't think that these, the, the pessimists that we talked about would feel that way. I think they would just say, we are correct. The optimists are incorrect. And yes, certainly. but but they are also cliches on my view. But but yeah, the book but the book does a lot more of a fair treatment to the to the philosophical tradition than I would as a rhetorician, which is another strength of the book. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I think you're you're right about um, the book title. The book title was um, a weird thing. We originally wanted to to have a quote um, as the book title, "Irrefutable Despairs," which is a translated quote from a pessimist, uh, Emile Chiron. And I, let me just say that, like, er, most of the things I know, I know from reading, not, I'm not a super social person, right? So I don't, I, these pronunciations may not be 100% correct, but I did look it up. And I think that's how you, you pronounce his name. But most of these things I've just read. So it started with a quote from him, and um, publisher didn't like it. So we kind of played around with a bunch of other ideas and we ended up picking a feeling of wrongness because um, it, it kind of illustrated the ideas of the book, like you said, but also because Ethan, uh, my co-author, thought that it was just an incredibly uncomfortable title. And like a lot of what we talk about in the book is pessimism's desire to try to make people uncomfortable. Um, and it, it, it is an uncomfortable title. I don't like it. I don't like. Do you want to? Do you want to? In that case, do you not want to talk about the weird anime yeah, connection? No, no, I'll, yeah. You want to skip that? No, okay. No, I'll throw that. Yeah, that's, that's leading into that. So what what happened was <laughs> this book goes up on Amazon, and I'm super excited to to show all my family. Like, you know, I have a book. I have a book on on Amazon. You can check it out. And uh, under all of the suggested reading for the book, are not like other academic books. Instead, it's all this like really 
creepy uh, manga that sort of suggests relationships between adults and children. I don't know. So I have, I took a screenshot of it and one of the the photos was um, recommended anime coloring book, an adult coloring book with cute uh, kawaii girls. And it's just, they're all like that. And I was like, oh, this is gross. <laughs> but like, I guess that's like, that's what a feeling of wrongness means. So it, yeah, it's an uncomfortable title uh, it, that has been changed now. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I don't like the title. And, and I say- too bad. We were, you might have you accidentally sold a lot of yeah, copies sold of this more book. Copies, right. Um, yeah, I, I said we were on the same page. We were, we actually had a big fight about it, and Ethan won, and that that was the title. Of the yes, book, so. and just for the audience's sake, uh, what Joe is describing is what I call the Lolita phenomenon, which is relationships with people that are young enough to be creepy, but not so young that like it's entirely out of like literary realm. So don't like I don't want it's not children, so don't over. I don't want you to think that we're like overstating the case here. But I mean, I think it's important because there is this sense of. There's a very, like, this pessimism taps into a real taboo sense of, like, people are not allowed to explore, even in very, like, like coloring books, for example, things that are on the borderline of social acceptability, certainly not, like, straight up into illegal harm, but, you know, on the borderlines of what's socially acceptable. And without an outlet for that kind of expression, you do wind up with, you know, sort of like a repressive system that winds up coming back to bite you in the ass. And so the book doesn't quite get that naughty, but it certainly taps on some more accessible, like that's why these are cult, right? A lot of these are cult texts because they sort of exist on the margins to allow people kind of a like safe fantasy space to like explore some of these like, oh, I don't always feel so hot about being alive in a way that I think mainstream culture just tries to disavow a lot. Yeah. So one of one of the sort of guiding things that we bring throughout the book is that there was this Norwegian philosopher, I think in the around 1930s-ish, um, and he was a pessimist and he sort of said that there are four strategies that we use to avoid pessimism. So, you know, again, he felt that pessimism was correct and true. I wouldn't say that, right? But his argument is that what kept people from seeing the truth are these four things. And I don't think, yeah, so these four things. And isolation, right? So we take bad things about the world and we sort of just pretend that they're not happening, right? Like, you know, we'll be fine, like global warming, like we'll be okay, right? Uh, or, you know, people are suffering around me and I'm just going to ignore it. Uh, the second is distraction. So, you know, I'm going to go watch TV, right? Instead of face bad things that may be around me. The third is anchoring, which is the idea that we you know, yes, things may be bad, but ultimately I'm willing to endure these bad things for a higher purpose, right? Whether it's sort of like we need to have a revolution or I'm doing it for religious reasons or whatever the case may be, the suffering is necessary for some higher purpose. And then fourth is the idea of sublimation where you're sort of like embracing suffering for its own sake. So there are folks, uh, philosophers that often get lumped in with pessimists, right? And they're called pessimists. They wouldn't fit our definition of pessimism, which is to say nothing uh, is better than something. Um, but folks like Nietzsche would make the case that, you know, life is suffering, but we can embrace that suffering, right? right. Life is meaningless, but we can fill it with our own meaning, right? Because there is no intrinsic meaning. We can fill it with our right. own meaning. And so that is... Um, this form of sublimation. And yeah. these are the four strategies 
that are used to kind of avoid seeing pessimism. And so the case studies that we offer, we kind of make the case that they do things to subvert these strategies that we would ordinarily have, the audience would ordinarily have to a pessimistic message, which is why instead of just being a book, you know, that like, here's a book with pessimistic stuff, read the book, they're, you know, a TV show or a video game. Yeah. And I actually had a question about that. And again, um, it's hard for me to often do these book interviews because my critic brain is on so hard when I read this stuff and I'm supposed to turn that off. So when I ask you this question, it's not like a gotcha question. It's a genuine curiosity. But you make the case, uh, I think it's in the true detective. I've highlighted so much of this book that at this point, the highlighting is useless. But you make the case, I think it's in the true detective chapter that that, that there are messages in that show that would that would only be read and this isn't exactly what you say but you say like they would only be readable to someone with like a philos- with like a philosophical orientation and it made me think that kind of what you're arguing is that your readings of these texts are only accessible to people who have certain leanings and i'm wondering if you mean by that like people who are willing to avow those leanings or if you really think that these texts can only be read the way you read them by a certain group of people yeah Okay. Yeah. No, no. That's a, that's a great is that question. a fair question yeah, that you understand? Yeah, or yeah. Do I need to find the page? Yeah. Okay. So, right. um, a, a lot of that chapter, uh, you know, true detective TV show on HBO, there are these two detectives that are solving a crime. One of them would fit the model of pessimist, uh, Russ Cole. He's, a, just very down on life. A lot of the things that he says in the show, like the fact that, you know, we're meat puppets and we live in a cosmic gutter, those lines, have been more or less lifted from the work of uh, philosophical pessimist Thomas Ligotti um, and the the show's runner admitted as much, right? That, that Russ Cole is very influenced by these pessimists. All right. So um, our analysis from that chapter relies heavily on the work of Leo Strauss, who is a philosopher and Strauss made the case that all these famous philosophical texts like Plato's work, everybody's reading them wrong because Plato actually hides messages in, you know, his work of whatever, the Republic or whatever that Plato wrote. So you read the Republic, you read it wrong because you're not reading for the hidden messages. So I'm not a philosopher. I don't, I I think that all of that is a very interesting discussion, but Ethan and I kind of make the case that um, what is important is not whether there are hidden messages in a text, but whether a text invites us to view it as having hidden messages. So Leo Strauss uses mm. the word esoteric, right? So these yes. texts are esoteric in the sense that they have these hidden messages. So wh- whether they're esoteric is sort of a yes or no question, which I'm not particularly interested in as a rhetorician. Mm-hmm. Instead, yeah. the question is, does this text invite an esoteric reading? And we make the case that True Detective does invite an esoteric reading through a bunch of things, right? There are a bunch of intertextual references to other books and other media and philosophers and Russ Cole and other characters tell the audience, like, you got to look deeper, can't look at things at the surface. So there are all these things in the show that invite a deep reading of the show. And, and True Detective isn't the only one. Like Lost was a show that had all of these like, weird mysteries and that kind of, that invited, you know, fans, you know, obsessive fans to sort of like write, have huge blogs and here are my theories and all of this other stuff. So it's not just that it invites 
an esoteric reading, but combined with the show's pessimism and a variety of other directorial uh, choices on behalf of the show, we kind of make the idea that whether or not it's intentional, the show invites an esoteric reading and we provide some evidence from fans that they are engaging in that kind of esoteric pessimistic reading. Yeah, I thought the true detect and interestingly enough, it's this is one of those things. This is why I love criticism because I had watched the first season of True Detective, possibly on your recommendation, although now I can't remember, and just been like, meh, it's fine. Hmm. Um, but then after reading the chapter, I went back and watched a few episodes again, and I was like, oh, see, I like it so much more now. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. So, um, so I, I, I think, I think it is cool because it's not that I like couldn't access the reading before because it isn't like it's like it's not like you play the record backwards or whatever. It's just that you have to be willing to sort of admit, you have to be willing to like look for certain things and and look at counter narratives instead of reading some of, I think the, especially like some of the torture porn that's on the surface of that show that that that's kind of where my brain wanted to go in terms of interpretation. So this gave me sort of, I wouldn't say a deeper view, but just an alternate sort of looking at it sideways, which is, I don't know who coined that term, but to look at a text sideways, but I always liked it. I think it might be Zizek. But that's kind of how I felt about watching it a second time. So even Rick and Morty, too. I mean, I have never been a particular fan of that show, but I, uh, I, I am more compelled to watch it now that I have this other way of thinking about it, which I think is what great criticism does. Yeah. So in addition to sort of re- uh, reclaiming pessimism, which is impo- it's important. I mean, it's important that pessimism get airtime because it is like disavowing it in, in any of its in any of its definitions, I think is very is a very unproductive and toxic strategy. But also it makes a lot of these texts just a lot cooler than they might at first appear to people who maybe are not like cult, like fans of the of the cult kind of text. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All right. So speaking of text, do you want to talk about any of the chapters? Is there one that was like your favorite or one that you think is like the coolest to discuss? Because some of them too are kind of visually driven a little bit. Not that the book has pictures, but you did you you do kind of spend some time really describing some of the things that are happening. So some may play better on air than maybe they might if we had like video clips. Yeah. So I mean, we can start with the first chapter, I guess. Uh, we Let's look, do it. Yeah. So tell us about the first chapter. <laughs> so the first chapter looks at weird fiction, which is a body of work. Um, these oftentimes, but not always, short stories that are scary stories, but not but diverge, I would say, substantially from maybe the more traditional horror narrative. And um, H.P. Lovecraft is maybe not not the origin, but certainly one of the better known writers of weird fiction. Uh, And we talk about many others like Ambrose Bierce and uh, a bunch of other writers. But the argument that we make is that these weird fiction stories are pessimistic, right? They have a pessimistic message to them and they do that by sort of relying on a variety of themes um, that are pessimistic in addition to pessimistic content. So obviously horror stories may be pretty intrinsically pessimistic, especially when the, you know, the monster or terrible thing doesn't die, right? That seems pretty pessimistic. But uh, in addition to that, they have a kind of pessimistic narrative structure to them they are often begin in the middle of things and they don't necessarily end um, with any kind of resolution to the problem presented in the narrative itself. So there's a, a famous one that's name is escaping me now of a guy who's about to get hanged, but then 
he makes this daring escape and jumps into the river and, you know, they're shooting at him and he gets away. But really, he at the, the story ends and none of that happens. He just gets hanged, you know, and that's just kind of the end of the story. Um, there are oftentimes the, you know, if you read a lot of traditional horror, we'll be living in our world and then some terrible thing will enter it. Right. So we're all hanging out. And then next thing you know, there's a vampire and we got to get rid of this vampire. And then the vampire goes away and then things are pretty much back to normal. Right. You know, we've, you know, problem has emerged, problem removed. We return to normal. Whereas in these weird fiction stories, what they do is cast doubt on the whole nature of our reality. So the monster or terrible thing or supernatural element isn't necessarily invading our world to prey on us. It's just something that exists and is more or less indifferent to us and through its indifference can be incredibly destructive. Um, but ultimately, we just don't matter to it, right? Though There are these ancient, terrible beings that have existed for you know millennia before humans. We cross paths with them. They indifferently destroy us like ants. Uh, and uh, at the end, we don't really get rid of them, right? And so that's like a whole different thing than I think most traditional horror narrative. And it's one that sort of decenters humans as the metaphorical center of the universe. Um, and there are a whole bunch of other themes that emerge in, in these um, weird fiction stories, like the idea of humans as like lacking free will and agency, the idea of forbidden knowledge, Right. That and pessimists, you know, pessimists kind of consider themselves purveyors of forbidden knowledge. So in these books, someone will read some ancient texts like the Necronomicon or uh, the plays of the Yellow King, which that book features prominently in True Detective, you know, that fictional book. So, you know, they've read this forbidden knowledge and they're driven mad or invite some sort of supernatural terror into their life. And so the idea is like, don't seek knowledge, you know, stay in your lane, your very small, tiny, insignificant lane humanity. Because if you look beyond this, you'll kind of realize that ultimately the world is truly terrible and you're just kind of a tiny, unimportant part of it. We definitely timed this interview great for the middle of a pandemic. So everyone listening at home, <laughs> there's 30 minutes left to go. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to do you want to say any more about the weird fiction? Um, I actually went to Rhode Island for a con- I took my some of my students to a conference there last year and I got to go to all of the HP Lovecraft stuff. Like I went on tours and like there's like a bunch of museums and he really um, it's weird because even though he because he's considered weird, weird fiction, right? Lovecraft. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's like part of the chapter. So I just wanted to make sure because um, I wasn't sure if he was like. Yeah, like, absolutely. But he's he's not he's not a philosophic pessimist. He's just an author who and and you're and you're combining him with the pessimistic tradition. Well, you know, when you read his writing, like his le- his personal letters, he uh-huh. does appear to be a philosophical pessimist. Oh, and again, okay. from a so, rhetorical per- perspective, as we've said, the intent doesn't necessarily matter. But his right, but there's evidence that does the align. intent is there yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's shocking how much joy and optimism he provides in his pessimism to people who follow his 
him as like a like a cult figure, right? It's it's actually kind of a cool paradox to be in that area and like look at all these people who just obviously whose lives have been considerably given more meaning by peddling this person of anti-meaning. So I had fun with that. So it was a cool chapter to read it from that perspective as well. Yeah, that's something that we talk about as most of the case studies we look at are sort of um, singular uh, in the sense that once something exists for so long, it kind of gets adapted or co-opted, yeah. right? And so a lot of right. H.P. Lovecraft's stuff was truly horrifying, but now you can buy like a plush Cthulhu doll or whatever. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to keep going with this one or True Detective or where do you want to go from here? Um, you know, we talked some about True Detective. We could do, um, we got Rick and Morty, we got Final Fantasy. I mean, all the chapters are so good. I mean, I would have a hard time picking a favorite, but I think, I think the weird fiction one was one I really like, because it also makes me think of like, um, like there's been a big debate. There was a big, big debate a couple years ago between Ben Marcus and Jonathan Franzen, who are both like, like Ben Mar- Marcus is a big time literary critic of Jonathan Franzen, obviously is like a really world renowned author about how experimental fiction is destroying life as we know it. And experimental fiction is not weird fiction, but um, they have overlap. And I thought it was really interesting that like people were actually coming out on the internet and being like, stop writing like this. It's making everyone sad. <laughs> you know, and these, and these authors like Franzen were like, yeah, but my job is to make life complex and not to make it happy. And everyone was like, stop doing that. We hate it. And it was, um, it made me think of this, this, this kind of point you make about the, the weird fiction. Although I don't, th- you don't see that kind of stuff like precisely because you said, because these are, these are cult texts. But you see this kind of oppression of the pessimist, the disavowal of pessimism mirroring itself in mainstream discussions about literature. That's fascinating. I, I don't know a whole lot about that, but that seems like, I mean, that could easily have been, you know, something that we looked at. Presum- I mean, yeah, from a very surface level, that seems to kind of fit. That's really interesting. Yes, um, um, I can send it. There, it's, it's, all, it's, the fine, it's the closing chapter of my book. So when it comes out, I will send it to you and you can read it. Um, yeah, absolutely. But thinking about the, un- but one thing we didn't talk about actually before we move on is the uncanny. Cause I really love that concept. And I think, I think it gets at what about pessimism works. If that makes sense. Do you want to talk more about how you see the uncanny functioning in this weird fiction and like what that means? We, so for those of you who don't listen to every single thing that comes out of my mouth, I did an interview with Kendall Phillips, a couple, maybe like last year on the new books network about weird how the word weird actually was the precursor to horror so prior to the 1920s when the word horror comes out specifically as a marketing strategy for the new dracula they didn't have a word to describe cinema that dealt with the supernatural around the turn of the century and they used the word weird and one of the things that old cinematography does is really produces this sense of the uncanny in a way that makes it very unique to the modern viewer who no longer kind of gets that experience because of the way that um, cinema has become so much more able to be realistic. So you do something very different with The Uncanny in this book. And I thought maybe you want to talk about that because it's probably my favorite part of the book, if I had to be honest, is is your discussion of The Uncanny. Yeah. So The Uncanny, it's... Sorry, did I put you on the spot? No, 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 no. (laughs) So it's it's a weird concept. I mean, it's incredibly hard to articulate without like the book in front of you. Yeah, it. I, I think we have a quote in there um, from Freud where he says, "Let me just let me see if I can grab this." Um, An uncanny effect often arises when the boundary between fantasy and reality is blurred. When we are faced with the reality of something 
that we have until now considered imaginary, right? And so we kind of make the case that the pessimists have trouble just presenting a stark vision of badness um, because people just shut it out. They're like, I don't know. I, I feel like my life is fine. And so that sort of direct messaging, direct vector attack, if you will, um, just goes nowhere, really. I mean, some, you know, not, not to say nowhere, certainly some people may be persuaded by that, but the vast majority of, of individuals, probably that doesn't really work on. And so a pessim- the, to be effective, the pessimists need to sort of like blur their message. It's sort of hidden. It's unclear. Um, and weird fiction draws upon this idea of the uncanny where, you know, we're not necessarily certain what we're, what we're seeing, these supernatural elements, whether they exist, right, to what extent they exist. Um, they're, they kind of blur into our existence and blur out, potentially. Um, and and mm-hmm. even though, uh, it, certainly this is true of horror, traditional horror, to a certain degree, um, you know, Dracula is Dracula, right? Whereas in in some of these weird fiction stories, what we're dealing with, in whether it's real or just sort of kind of an element of, you know, insanity is a theme that kind of goes right. throughout a lot of these weird fiction stories. So can we be certain that we're interpreting the world correctly? What is it exactly we're seeing? Um, Lovecraft often makes the horrors undescribable, right? And so the character will just be like, it was so I can't fathom it. It, it literally bends my mind's ability to truly kind of comprehend the mm-hmm. thing that I'm seeing is a kind of theme that runs throughout this weird fiction. So that all kind of like draws on this idea of the uncanny, sort of the, the merging of unreality to reality. And the pessimistic approach to persuasion has to kind of do this, this sort of like merger rather than direct frontal. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's Lacan who says that you cannot be told about the uncanny, the uncanny, you have to be made to encounter it. Hmm. Which is why so often you see the uncanny being like cinematography or you don't like you, you, re- you rarely hear someone like uh, Obama gave a speech and in the speech he he had the uncanny because it just is very it's it's very hard to do like in speech, but you can do it in other rhetorical modes. Right. So I, yeah, so very similar to kind of what you're saying with the pessimist having this problem of the more obvious you try to make the uncanny, the less it's the uncanny. Right. So hence the like, it has to happen off screen kind of. So like people always, um, so you talked about Oedipus earlier, but people often use the uncanny to describe that scene at the beginning of Antigone where she lets out the scream after she sees that her like brother's body hasn't been properly buried. Hmm. And they argue that there was no way. So like it has to be such a transformative moment in, in the sense of like the breaking of custom to drive this entire narrative of like Antigone rebelling against the king that if you tried to describe it, it would have failed. So you can't actually, quote unquote, show her doing it on, on stage because people wouldn't, wouldn't encounter it. You have to make it so horrifying that the person who just saw it is like, I can't believe what I just heard, right? Because otherwise, the more you try to describe it, the more it fails to work. 
Yeah, that, that's a great yeah. example. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I love I love reading Antigone criticism. It's very cool. But it made me think, but it's, it's probably the best example of the uncanny. And you show that happening again in, in this fiction. Awesome. Well, that was fun. I, yeah, I love this chapter. So why don't you want to move on to Rick and Morty? Because I feel like a lot of people listening are going to be like really into the Rick and Morty. Chapter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's such a it's got such a big following right now. Yeah. Um, cool. So, Hop on it. OK. All right. So Rick and Morty, uh, hugely popular um, animated sitcom. In a lot of ways, it mirrors these earlier animated sitcoms in the sense that you know you have a family with a kind of bumbling you know dad and this sort of weird character mad scientist i guess not all of them have that you know obviously but you know it's brightly colored they it it clearly shows its roots in things like the the simpsons or family guy even though um in kind of tone and content it's certainly moves away from those i I would say to a certain degree but kind of up it's a part of that lineage so you have this you know comedy they're the zany hijinks where the mad scientist um grandfather takes his grandson and they go on adventures and there are you know laser battles and fart jokes and in that sense it's i don't know it, it kind of fits within this you know a more outlandish version of, of the Simpsons or family guy. Right. Uh, And I think, I think what it shares in common, I've been thinking a lot about this. So I think what Rick and Morty shares in common with some of these others is that they do all traffic and sort of like irreverence, mm -hmm. except Simpsons and, and things like that traffic more in like, they really depend on irony in the sense they're trying to like mock conventions in a lot of ways, sometimes more or less problematically in the case of family guy. But Rick and Morty really, like their irreverence is very serious in the sense they don't, there really sometimes is no grounding to an actual, right? Because irony, something has to return as something else. And in Rick and Morty, there's not often something returning as something else. It's very much just outside of reference. If that, So it literally is e-reference. And mm-hmm. I think that's what makes it fun for people and also why it works for your argument, as opposed to something like Family Guy, which seems still very grounded in referentiality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, yeah, especially Family Guy is certainly very referential. Um, Family Guy sucks. I'm just gonna say yeah, it right now, just yeah. so there's no <laughs> so there's no confusion from anyone listening. It's terrible, and I will fight you about it. Yeah. Is it still on? Who knows? Hopefully not, but probably yes. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. Um, so. I, I apologize to any Rick and Morty fans out there, any Simpsons fans. I'm not certainly not saying these are all equal. Oh, right? I love the Simpsons. No, I love Simpsons, Rick and Morty. I, it's, no, no, it's yeah, not I'm, my saying, cup of tea I'm saying that by I lumping the Simpsons it. and yes. Rick and Morty with family. No, I'm not they, saying that. But they share they yeah. share things in common. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the, the argument that we make is that, you know, we go through the show and find all of these examples of the show basic, basically subverting these four strategies that uh peter zaffa um identified so you know the show is a distraction right but in the show and in the show they're like don't think about it right they they walk past this alien that lives a whole life cycle in two seconds and then dies um you know rick and morty kill themselves in another universe and take their place and you know the show is like don't think about it right don't worry about it that's distraction but because we're watching that as our distraction, it sort of undercuts 
our ability to engage in that strategy. And the show also is very, takes a target at religion. And, you know, Rick is very anti-religion. He's very anti-authority. And so the idea of anchoring, the idea of creating meaning for the world's suffering in some larger idea is something that's sort of taken apart by the show because, you know, Rick is, you know, being a God, right. Being, he creates his own subjects and he's their God. And he's obviously a terrible God to them, right. He just uses them to basically power his car. And and so they're just all of these things that, you know, anchoring and, and distraction and isolation are kind of taken apart by the show. Um, they're made fun of, you know, Rick has, he's a very pessimistic character in a lot of ways. Um, oftentimes says that he wishes he wasn't made the creatures that he makes, whether it's like a clone of Adolf Hitler and um, Abraham Lincoln mashed together was like, I didn't ask to be, you know, I didn't want to be born that kind of stuff. So there are these pessimistic themes that run throughout the show. And we argue that, but certainly there are pessimistic themes in Antigone, right? So why is Rick and Morty pessimistic in a way that Antigone wouldn't necessarily be. Oh, I was just going to totally ask you that question. Awesome. Good. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. So the the reason that we argue is because Antigone is using that um, structure of tragedy. And so, yes, it's a, it's a tragic story, but then the tragic story has its arc and it ends in tragedy. And then we all feel catharsis and then we move on with our lives. Whereas Rick and Morty is operating in the structure of, um, it's a mixture of tragedy and comedy, right? And certainly there have been tragic comedies, right? So there have been things where a tragedy happens and then then jokes are made at the expense of that tragedy. But this is more of a comic tragedy. So the show is a comedy. It it is stealing, it's, you know, using the form of these other things like The Simpsons. But within this comic structure, there are these just sort of like breaks where there are moments of real sadness, that are never resolved. Um, And so one example is that um, they're they're on this, Rick and Morty are on this adventure and they're, I don't know, there's a jelly bean guy and they're, they're they're going to, to deal with some giants and they go to giant court and they're on their way back. And it's just sort of this whimsical adventure. Rick is singing karaoke and then Morty is in the bathroom and he gets assaulted by this alien and it's not played for laughs. It's incredibly uncomfortable. And what is this doing in an animated sitcom? It just has no part. And the creator of the show basically said that scene was not played for laughs. It was meant to be incredibly uncomfortable. It's just in there. Or when Rick, you know, tries to kill himself at the end of an episode, like no episode of the Mm -hmm. Simpsons ends with Homer trying to kill himself and failing because he's too drunk. You know, it's just right. And right. And South Park does it, but obviously like it's, it's a gag, right? It's a running gag with the guy who constantly dies and it's never suicide. It's always like he dies through like circumstance. Right. Ken- Kenny, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that that's the idea is that, you know, you've taken this thing that's comedic, you've have all of these sort of pessimistic messages that's that potentially subvert these strategies that we would have for ignoring pessimism and it's using this novel structure that um that makes us maybe more susceptible to its pessimism 
because we don't resolve its pessimism in the way that we would resolve it if it was a traditional comedy or it was a traditional tragedy because it has this kind of merged form. So um, I don't think you... I don't think you talked about this in the book, and I'm sorry if I overlooked it. I, I do read these kind of fast as much as I try sure, to be yeah. thorough. But so Kenneth Burke, who was a, a he's technically like an English, he's like a literary theorist who sort of rhetoric sort of borrows. Um, he, he has these two strategies, and I'm not telling you this. I'm telling the listeners. <laughs> he has these two strategies essentially of of what we would call catharsis, right? Which is essentially um, expunging the guilt or expunging the badness at the heart of society so that we don't have to deal with it. One is scapegoating, right? Which is the classic like, oh, instead of just dealing with the fact Germany is just having a shitty time, let's just blame the Jews. Mm. And then mortification, which is sort of what we call like victim shaming or guilt, which is, I, I think, what, and I, I, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but one of the things I like about the book and its its presentation of pessimism is that I actually think something worse happens when people are confronted with the feeling of wrongness than pessimism, and that is guilt. Because guilt de- is, such an, is such a solipsistic, demotivational affect Yet we will embrace guilt all the time over pessimism, even though pessimism actually is, I think, less destructive than guilt in a lot of ways. But 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 mortification is sort of the strategy of just taking on so much guilt that you're absolved from responsibility. So what we call like victimhood or Nietzschean resentment. But Burke actually has this quote in um, it might actually be the one where he talks about tragic comedy and the attitudes of history. But he says he says. Uh, uh, like um, imperfection without scapegoating or mortification becomes fornication. <laughs> Not literally, but meaning like it becomes a monstrosity. So when right. you have a situation where the guilt at the center of like beingness, the badness is not somehow expunged, but reabsorbed, like you have in a case where somebody makes a not funny dark joke over not being able to commit suicide because they're so drunk, you have this monstrosity of, of a text. And that's literally, I think what you're looking at in Rick and Morty. Does that feel right to you? Yeah. Although, yes, it does. Uh, that's, yeah, I think that that's right on with the, with the or, minor. Does it, feel, does it feel wrong to you? <laughs> <laughs> with the minor exception is I don't think it's a joke. Like, well, yeah. And I didn't have language for that. Cause you're right. It's not, it, it, that's why I said dark comedy, which also still isn't right. And God, don't get me started on dramedy. If one more person's <laughs> like, Oh, dramedy, I'll be like, Bleh. no, that's not what we're talking about. But yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It, there needs to be another word for Rick and Morty besides dark comedy, but that's how people describe it. But that's not comma tragedy. I think is a good good modifier. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah, I didn't. I meant that word in like a. I don't have another word for this. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. No, no. But but other than that, yeah, right on. Absolutely. Maybe like absurdity is that is no because the absurd is like a totally different. I guess it's just pessimism. I guess that's the word we use now. Yeah, because yeah. because the. You know, the, the absurd, sub, absurdism, and we talk a little bit about this in the chapter, that kind of brings to mind yeah. maybe the mm-hmm. existentialists. And right. certainly yeah. they yeah. thought that there was no meaning, but definitely the not pessimists, right? They're kind of the create yeah. your own meaning crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I like that. So just sort of like com- pessimism choice A, comma tragedy choice B. Mm. Yeah. But I mean- there is um but 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 bringing back to that uncanny right that's that's what that feeling sort of is when you watch the show and it it feels bad but not in the way that it's like productively bad the way that like say um oh gosh what's that stupid this is us which is just like clearly such an emotionally manipulative how sad can i make this kind of move that's not what this is but yet it is also a feeling of wrongness just not 
just not a feeling of wrongness that you can easily, it's not legible, right? It's a feeling of wrongness that isn't legible to the way we normally think of things that are bad. That's how I feel when I watch this show. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and Or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think that to some extent, um, you know, the argument that we make is, is that if you make it legible, right, by, by reading the book, you probably diffuse to some extent the effectiveness of these texts as pessimistic. Right. Well, possibly, except if your argument is right, that you have to have, a, that there really needs to be a way of looking at these, you may actually strengthen it. I guess it just depends on, I mean, you're a pessimist and I'm not. So part of it is I keep wanting to fight you on your like insistence that it's, <laughs> I want to be like, no, let's turn it into something productive. And you're like, no, that's not really the game here. <laughs> um, well, it's, it, it's the idea, you know, we kind of make the case that it's, a lot of this, if it works, which, you know, we're not social scientists, right? But it works, you know, on the level of affect. And if it, if you spell it out, then you're in the world of argument and rhetoric, right? So if you can kind of dissect the text and be like, oh, this is how it's making me feel pessimistic, then perhaps it doesn't work. Maybe, it, you know, your defenses kick in, Right. Whereas if you go in and it, again, like it doesn't work for everyone, you watch True Detective and you're like, oh, this is kind of gross torture porn. You know, obviously, if you're a pessimist, you got to take what you can get, right? Because <laughs> right, you're, yeah. you're sort of limited <laughs> in the strategies yeah. that you can use. We kind of make the case that of, of the tools available to pessimists, these ones seem to work pretty well. And part of that is that we don't code them immediately as pessimistic. Right. Huh. Can I ask you a totally offbeat question? Is pessimism like a debate strategy? Can you use it to like <laughs> counter arguments? Is that something you do or has been done? Yeah, this is it's a little embarrassing. So my my interest in in philosophical pessimism comes from debate. Yeah, by the way, that's not hidden. Yeah. You said that literally at the start okay. of the interview. <laughs> and uh and yeah, debate is very much interested in saving the world, right? So one side gets up and is like, we got to do this thing to save the world. And so every debate is sort of premised on that. And so one strategy you can almost always deploy is to say the world isn't worth saving. So, you know, not necessarily the best <laughs> strategy, but certainly if you can get very good at it, and there have been debate teams that have been very good at it, there have been some really big debates. Uh, there was a Harvard team that won some really big debates against other Ivy League schools going for the strategy. Um, so, yeah, it, it is. It, it does. My interest in it comes from my interest in debate. Otherwise, I really wouldn't have come across it. But certainly there are pessimists out and about that aren't debating. Well, and you sort of start talking in the conclusion about that because you kind of talk about, pe like, has it, what do you call it? Like, has it won any battles or something, mm -hmm. I think you say? Yeah. Um, so, like, has it? In terms of, I mean, I know the answer. I read the book, but for the for the people at home, like, does that dovetail at all? The debate discussion do, does that dovetail with some of the stuff you said in the conclusion? Yeah, does it win any battles? Uh, you know, it's hard to say, right? Because if you're a pessimist, do you go around trying to convince other people to be pessimists? I don't know. Probably not. I don't know. Maybe you just don't have kids, and and, and again, I'm not saying I'm a. Maybe you just give up. You know, you're just like I'm done. Uh, it, it takes a special kind of pessimist to be the kind of pessimist to be like, I'm a pessimist, nothing matters, life is bad, but I'm going to 
get you all on board with me. Right. So, well, except you sort of make the case in the conclusion about interstitiality, which is a fancy word for sort of like the in-between. So you, uh, let's see, where's the quote? So many highlights. Um, oh, yeah. And you don't use the word pessimism. You say comic tragedy, mm-hmm. however, is uniquely capable of working in and by virtue of the interstices, I think that's how you say that word, between optimistic forms. One possible effect of such maneuvering is the subversion or upending of the conventions that work to safeguard the optimism of dramatic form. Right. So is is comic tragedy kind of your mediating term that makes it workable or is comic tragedy just another is is that like a genre of pessimism? Yeah, well that seems to be your answer to the problem, right? We we would say that Rick and Morty is engaging in in that, right? So that that is that example. The other case studies maybe are using different strategies to get there. Um but, okay, because you say we saw this interstitial play in the case of Rick and Morty, to be sure, but also in the idiosyncratic Final Fantasy. So there's so there's hints of it other places, but you wouldn't call them like exemplars of that, oh, oh, of that I, strategy. I, sorry, I think I misunderstood your question. Yes. Oh, it's okay. Uh, comic strategy, definitely, and in the other ones, right? Yeah, op- yeah, absolutely. Operating in between uh, common forms and genres is a way to kind of subvert and get through, right? Because we have we have a way of it's it's like. Do you remember the first tragic thing that you encounter? I don't know, like when you're a kid and you're watching a movie and maybe you're watching. Um, oh, uh, yeah, I totally remember. I totally remember it. Okay. It was I was like four years old and this baby and my mother, my mother used to make. So my mother was like the queen of populism and she used to make me hang out with like the poor sad kids on the block. Mm-hmm which I didn't mind, but they always had really fucked up dysfunctional families. And so she was constantly exposing me to these horrifying like family dynamics. And one of them was this girl, Sharona. And she was my friend when I was four. She lived on the block and she had these three, like I'm sure currently in prison, older brothers. And they would force us to watch Nightmare on Elm Street. And it upset me so... Well, yeah, I was... Number one, I'm I'm not great at horror, especially... Oh, my God. When you said that thing earlier about monsters that don't die, like in Jeepers Creepers... That stuff messes me up so hard. I will like research how to, I'll, I'll go on fan fiction sites and research how to kill the monster just to make sure when the movie's over that someone has solved this problem for me because I cannot handle that there are monsters in the world that I cannot best, you know? Um, and, and I remember coming home and being just like insanely upset. And I think that was like truly the first time that I had been not traumatized. I don't use that word lightly, but like very terribly, deeply horrified. Yeah. Yes. So. If you, in case you were wondering, I can pinpoint literally. Yeah, the okay, well, there you go. And, and it doesn't have to And I mean, that's like, you know, that's a horror movie and you're a kid. But even like if you're watching a kid's movie and you're watching like the never ending story and. The, oh, the- oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So also um, when there's a scene in, um, oh gosh, with Mumra, what's the, uh, the Thundercats where uh, Wiley Kit and Wiley Cat, who are the little kid, the little kid Thundercats are like talking to this nice flower and they're having like a nice conversation. And then all of a sudden the, the flower transforms into Mumra. Mm. That really screwed me up. And that was like when I was little, little, and that was a, and that was a kid's show. Yeah. Right. And so when, when we encounter these horrifying things and these tragic things, like never any story, the horse dies, it's like the first time you're confronted with tragedy it's overwhelming, right? But by the time you're an adult, you've seen a, a, a hundred tragedies, you know? You you are better able to process it. And so if mm-hmm. you use the exact same form, we mm. know how to do that. You have ah. to operate in between forms to be able to truly deliver this pessimistic affect. 
I love that. And you had a cute, you had a, I wouldn't call it like a case study, but it's like a little vignette about Jordan Peele's Get Out as kind of an example of this that I thought was really illustrative. It's it's a great book. The minute you start talking about theory and I like can't quite figure out, and of course, this is always the trap. It's like, well, what does that look like? Well, how do you do that? It's like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm here to theorize stuff. I'm not really here to like give you like a guide, but it is very cool that as soon as the book gets really knee deep and stuff, then I'm having really trouble grasping there always seems to be something that at least gives me an idea of what that would look like to kind of keep me engaged in the book. So I don't know if that's your responsibility or Ethan's, but <laughs> it really it really took me just far enough before being like, okay, clearly you need an example because you're not going to hang on much longer. Yeah, no, I'm more the example guy. Perf- Ethan's yeah, it was the theory perfect guy. balance. Yeah, it was a perfect <laughs> balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. That. Well, and we are, and with that, we are sort of wrapping up on time. Um, I like to keep these interviews real, like about an hour. So do you have anything else about the book that you want to comment on or anything else about it that you think readers are really going to enjoy just in terms of wrapping up? Um, I mean, I, I think that I, I, I'd be interested in people's thoughts, I guess. So, you know, if, if somebody reads it and has some thoughts, you know, academic or not academic, you know, send me an email. If you search Joe Packer, you can, you can find me or you find Ethan won't respond, but you send me an email. I'd be curious, <laughs> uh, curious what you have to say about sure, it. What, um, where can they contact you? Uh, so if you search Joe Packer, Central Michigan University, that has my email. My email address is P-A-C-K-E-1-J at C-M-I-C. Yeah, no one's going to remember yeah, that. Right. So just Google. Yeah. <laughs> just remember, And then remember, the name of the book is A Feeling of Wrongness. You can't forget that title. Uh, Joe Packer. And that should bring up some, some rabbit hole. And also, don't forget to follow me on social media. I am either rhetorically, that's the word rhetoric, and then my name, L-E-E or rhetorically speaking, on all of the media. And I promote the episodes when they come out. So that will give you all of the information you need to reach out to either one of us. If you want to um, tell us how much Joe is wrong and how the world is worth saving and he needs to keep his anti-child, end-of-the-world apocalyptic doomsday thoughts to himself. But the book, even if you believe that, the book is still very cool just in terms of the, the text that it moves through. But also, I think, has a very legitimate argument to be made in favor of pessimism as a not viable is not the right word, but as you know, something you should consider as as threat as productively threatening to your own worldview. Does that make is that a good phrase? Yeah, how would you, how would you say it? Exactly. I mean, worse than that. I would say it worse than that. So we'll go with yours. <laughs> All right. And I always like to ask this question as we're wrapping up: Is there another book that you would like to recommend for a future interview? In addition to recommending my podcast, which is also rhetorically speaking, and you can find it on iTunes yeah. and everywhere else. Can't recommend right. that enough. I, I did come Thank with a recommendation, and Ethan, uh, my co-author, sent one in too. So I'd like great. to recommend Caitlin Bruce's right. book, uh, Painting Publics. It's great. Great book. Yes. Okay. I'm going to write that down. Caitlin Bruce, Painting Publics. Okay. And, uh, what else you got? Jeremy Vacker, No Relation. And uh, nope. oh, yeah. <laughs> Joshua Reeves' book, Killer Apps. Uh, this was uh, Ethan's recommendation. And it's about kind of how media is complicit in um, development of weapon systems, which I thought was really oh. interesting. And Kate- Caitlin's book is about um, graffiti art, uh, public street art. Which is really cool. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I know I have heard good things about both of those. So, but you're the first to actually recommend them. So if I name drop you, will they be more likely to return my email? You know, I will. Uh, I, I know Caitlin personally, so I will give her a nudge. Yeah. Let them know I'll be reaching out. It is shocking how hard it is to get people to come do a free thing to get their book promoted. You would, you would think there'd be a little Not more. Not me. I have nothing going on. I'm on no, pandemic time. Yeah. So I know we're just hanging out at home doing <laughs> book interviews. Well, once again, I would like to strongly recommend to everyone to check out Joe's book, A Feeling of Wrongness. Again, the author is Joe Packer, also Ethan Stoneman, who couldn't be with us, from the Pennsylvania State University Press. 
2018. And again, this is a university press we're talking about. And for good or ill, without them, I know some people have qualms, but I can say for, for firsthand that they do a ton to support the New Books Network. We do all of this basically on a volunteer budget. There, there is no budget. Um, and if without them, we would really have a hard time not only running the show, but also like books like Joe's, frankly, would not get published in a trade publication. And on top of that, they wouldn't get the attention or depth to editing and idea generation and verification that they get because of the resources of university presses. So we strongly encourage you to support the presses by picking up a copy of the book. If you don't want to own your own copy, you can always request that your local library get one, either a campus library or a public library. Even better, you can buy a copy of the book in hardcover and give it to them as a donation, and then they will put it on the shelf for other people to pick up. Uh, because these ideas are obviously very important. They're unique and sophisticated, and we want them to get out into circulation. And with that said, Joe, it's been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for the wonderful book and also for being on the show. And please let Ethan know how much we missed him and how much we also enjoyed the book. Cool. Thanks for having me. I'll let him know. Yeah. All right. Well, good night, everybody. Take care of yourself. Go wash your hands. Bye.